You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from the Encore series, where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. Today we're heading back to October 11th, 2021, when we hosted a virtual panel discussion entitled 9-11, Memorials and the Meaning of Memory. This program was part of a series related to our museum's first-ever special exhibit entitled Post-9-11, The Evolution of American Law Enforcement. This exhibit didn't just focus on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, but it looked at the varied ways law enforcement changed since the attacks. From advances in technology and communication to response in critical cases, 9-11 was a turning point for much of law enforcement in the United States. As we considered the many facets of life since 9-11, one concept we wanted to investigate was the very nature of how we remembered the attacks, how we memorialized what happened that day, and what meaning we found through those memorials. We felt it was important to reflect on how we honor the fallen and to hear stories from key sites about the differences these memorials make. To help us reflect on our experiences as a nation, not just on 9-11 but in the time since, we pulled together a fantastic slate of panelists from key 9-11 memorial sites. You'll hear from moderator Braden Painter, Director of Methodology and Practice with the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. And our panelists, Stephen M. Clark, Superintendent for the National Parks of Western Pennsylvania, including the Flight 93 Memorial. Jim Lechak, Executive Director of the Pentagon Memorial Fund. Amy Weinstein, Senior Curator of Oral History and Vice President of Collections for the National September 11th Memorial and Museum, and our own Pat Montori, now retired as the Executive Director of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. We have divided this program into two parts. In this first episode, you'll be introduced to our panelists and learn more about their particular memorial sites, along with the roles those sites play in our communities. And hi, everyone. My name is Braden Painter. I'm the Director of Methodology and Practice at the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. The coalition is a network of museums, historic sites, places of memory, um, more than 330 sites in more than 65 countries around the world. We regularly see communities um, around the globe thinking about how to use monuments and memorials Um, as places to think about the past, heal in the present, and move into the future, um, and move into building more just and humane futures. Uh, And so I'm really excited to talk with you all today and hear from some folks who are doing this really important work at a number of memorials around the United States. Um, We're lucky enough to be joined today by Stephen Clark, Superintendent of the National Parks of Western Pennsylvania which includes oversight of the Flight 93 National Memorial, Jim Lechak, Executive Director of the Pentagon Memorial Fund, Pat Montori, Executive Director of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, and our wonderful hosts today, and Amy Weinstein, Senior Curator of Oral History and Vice President of Collections for the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. Great. And maybe just to get us started as we think about the the roles that memorials can play in our many communities' lives, 
maybe we could just set the table a little bit with where each of your memorials came from. Um, so would you tell people a little bit about, uh, about how your memorial was created, who created it, um, what their hopes were for it, and, and who they kind of had in mind as they were, were creating this? Maybe Pat, would you get us started? Absolutely, I would love to. And, and the most beautiful spot in the world to me, National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial located in Washington, D.C. And in 1984, between 1988 and 80, 84 and 1988, uh, Congressman Biagi uh, and Craig Floyd went on an effort to try to make the National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial a reality. And then they so they did so in, in 1988. It took until 1991 for our memorial to be reality, which we all see today, it's beauty in Washington, D.C. It was made for everyone. It was made for law enforcement families that lost their, their loved ones. It was made for citizens that they served and protected for generations and years, uh, faithfully knowing that they could die in a line of duty. This place was the most amazing place you could see when you walk through it. And today I had a conversation so briefly with our CEO, Marcia Ferranto, and she said, well, how do you feel when you walk through there? And I said, I feel honorable. I feel power, powerful feelings of stories and contributions yet to be told because each and every one of those souls on that wall were there because they chose that profession. They chose to be there for the call of duty. No one chooses to die, but it's us, those who are here at the memorial service to recognize them, not annually, every day. And that's what we choose to do here at the memorial. And we've grown obviously to a museum. We've grown to a point where we're trying to keep our officers safe with officer safety and wellness. And the person who created our memorial and its beauty, I would be remiss not to say, is Davis uh, Buckley, uh, our architect. His beauty is displayed. And as we see again his artwork, as we go into unfortunately an expansion, because our wall is growing because each and every year our officers die. And unfortunately, we're a living memorial. We currently sit at 22,611 souls, officers, men and women. And now we'll be approaching that moving forward next year again, as we have a May of 22. And unfortunately, again, we will be sharing those names. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Um, thank you. And um, what Pat just said, I feel like I want to respond to while also um, explaining. So I'll see what I can do. Um, the National September 11th Memorial was um, created as the result of an international design competition, which began in early 2003. But really, the desire to create a memorial um, began organically within a few days after 9-11, um, at least in New York, and I, I think around the country and around the world, people began having ideas about what might be appropriate. Um, among those people was Michael Arad, um, an Israeli-born American architect who sketched out some ideas thinking about water and a void and doing a, a memorial in the, the river in the in the Hudson but there was an official there was an organized international jury design competition and Michael submitted an entry and he um, as part of the process he and uh, Peter Walker a landscape architect came together to to evolve the design. Um, we call it the 9-11 Memorial, but it has a name. It's called Reflecting Absence. 
and it reflects the absence of life, but the trees on the plaza reflect the, the growth of, of life and the movement, the, the progress of time. Um, something Pat said about um, expanding the memorial, we've, we've only been open a few years, but we realized um, that with so many people dying because of 9-11 related health consequences, health issues, um, cancers and, and respiratory issues that we wanted to, to do something to honor their loss. So we created a new section of the memorial called the Glade. Um, and that's a bit more abstract in that there are no names on the Glade um, as they are around the North and, and South Tower Pool. And we won't know all those names for, for quite a, a few more uh, years to come, but they're honored um, collectively. Mm. And for us, September 11th, yes, it's a date on the calendar, but it is something we are acutely aware of and, and live every day. Thank you as well. And we're going to move into, we'll do a round of sort of introductions, and then I hope we do get to some of those responses, because that's one of the values in bringing together folks with um, all of your different experiences is to be able to try and share and build together um, for maybe add something to, to folks <clears throat> who are listening and are thinking about memorialization in their own life and in their own world in some way. Um, so thank you, Stephen. Thank you and, and uh, good afternoon. Um, so as the superintendent of Flight 93 National Memorial, uh, we collectively with our partnerships and our volunteers, we tell the story of United Airlines Flight 93, uh, the fourth hijacked airliner on September 11, 2001. So the, the beginning um, of, the, uh, of the memorial itself, similar to what Amy and, and Pat had shared, was that it really kind of came from, from the ground up, you know, kind of a concept uh, immediately following September 11th that uh, one of the three attack sites was going to become part of the national park system, you know, a branch of the, uh, the Department of Interior. And um, uh, through a series of, of, of processes, uh, Flight 93 came to, to be that unit of the national park uh, system. So oftentimes for national parks, it takes decades to, to have the research and then ultimately Congress and the president sign it into law. But remarkably in this case, uh, George W. Bush signed Flight 93 National Memorial into law on September 24, 2002. So just a little over a year, which is again, unheard of, uh, Flight 93 National Memorial was born. And through a series of, uh, of, of tremendous partnerships and many years, um, parcels of land were, were purchased. And then finally, for the 10-year anniversary in 2011, uh, the plaza, the Wall of Names, the Sacred Ground, the Boulder uh, was, was created and dedicated. And then 2015, Phase 2, which is the Learning Center and the Visitor Center. And then finally, uh, the image behind me uh, is the Tower of Voices. Uh, dedicated in uh, September of 2018. And that tower is, is almost 10 stories, 93 foot high uh, tower containing 40 wind chimes, each of which weigh two to 300 pounds driven by 
the beautiful Western Pennsylvania wind. So, so um, you know, being a national memorial similar to Oklahoma City and USS Arizona and so many within the National Park Service, uh, we stand very proud along with Jim and the Pentagon Memorial, and of course, Amy and Alice and all of her colleagues in New York. And certainly as a law enforcement officer myself for the National Park Service for 29 years, uh, before I came into the superintendent rank six years ago, uh, I too have lost dear friends in the line of duty, uh, state troopers and, and law enforcement rangers who are on that wall, as Pat mentioned, uh, and uh, nothing but the utmost respect for what Pat and his team do. And Police Week means so much to me and so many. And again, once again, uh, it's an honor to be a part of this panel. Thank you. Yeah, and I think for a lot of folks probably listening and the folks on the panel, right, this is both, um, as you were saying, right, personal, it's professional, it's it's sort of rooted in individual lives and also in the kind of the larger, uh, the larger view you're taking as well through your work. So thanks for being able to walk both sides of that. Um, Jim. Uh, thank you, everybody. And uh, thank you for allowing me to participate in this. Um, I lost my brother Dave in the Pentagon on 9-11, and that is essentially how I got involved with the creation of the, the Pentagon Memorial and the credit, uh, creation of the Pentagon Memorial Fund, which is the nonprofit that I now serve as executive director. But uh, very similar to uh, the New York uh, Memorial, we um, worked very closely. There was a design competition, but we worked very closely with the Department of Defense because the the family members all felt that uh, the memorial needed to be there on the grounds uh, of the Pentagon. So it was a little bit uh, of a different situation, but we worked very closely with the Pentagon. There was a design competition. It started um, shortly, the planning for it started shortly after the attack. This was probably in November where a group of families got together as uh, asked to be steering committee members. And I was one of those. Uh, families and there was a, a international design competition uh, similar to the uh, New York Museum and um, basically they had these uh, uh, designs or ideas or posters that were held in the National Building Museum in uh, Washington DC and you can imagine going through room after room of, of these designs there was over I think uh, 2,000 designs that were submitted from 66 different countries around the world. And it was really uh, unbelievable to see these designs. So we went through a process to, to narrow down the designs and we selected uh, five or six, I think six finalists uh, who could then come up with a model or a concept design and the jury met again. And it was uh, consisted of family members, myself and another woman who lost her, her father on this steering um, design competition committee. There are former secretaries of defense that were on it, uh, artists and architects from around the, around the world, uh, around the country to, to participate in it. And it was facilitated by a woman, um, Carol Anderson Oster, who worked for the Army, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So it was a very interesting project and process to follow. But we basically came up with a design that was submitted by a couple from New York, Keith Caseman and Julie Beckman, and it was essentially um, a memorial unit for each person that died. And it was arranged according to the age lines of the victims, uh, starting with a three-year-old little girl, Dana Falkenberg, which was on flight 77, all the way up to 71-year-old John Yamnicki. 
who was also on the on the flight, but a retired Navy captain. And I describe it as a, a individual memorial, a collective memorial, and it kind of tells a story about what happened that day because each memorial unit uh, is arranged according to the age line uh, that the victim was born. So in other words, my brother was born in 1961. His memorial unit is on the um, uh, 1961 age line with all the other uh, people who were born that year. But each memorial unit has a different directionality based on whether they were in the plane or in the building. So when I read the name at the end of this bench, and it's a cantilevered bench over a pool of water, I'll see my brother's name, but I'll also see the Pentagon in the background. For someone who's on the plane, that orientation is reversed. I'll read the name at the end of the bench, and I'll see the sky in the background. And another subtle uh, subtlety to it is each of the age lines are oriented according to the flight path of the plane into the building. So in a very subtle way, as you're walking through the park that has these benches, the flow of water, um, trees, uh, shrubbery around the, on the outside, you're oriented to the, where the plane um, came through the building. The Pentagon was rebuilt in a year, but it's still important for family members to be able to see and visitors to be able to see where that, where that plane came through the building. So. We had the design in 2002, the Pentagon Memorial Fund was the nonprofit created and we worked very closely with the Department of Defense to raise the money to design and build uh, the Pentagon Memorial. And we were dedicated, uh, the memorial was dedicated in se September of 2008. I think it was the first of the three 9-11 memorials that were dedicated um, in this country. And I remember talking about what the family members you know, wanted and what we wanted people to remember our loved ones. We wanted people to remember what happened there that day. And we want people to remember that feeling of unity that came through and swept our through our country after 9-11 and bringing together people to comfort all those who were in such pain. So with the memorial has, has stood up, stood the test of time very well. It still uh, attracts a lot of visitors, unfortunately, because it's on the grounds of the Pentagon right now. It's been closed over concerns of COVID because there's really no way to regulate visitors into the memorial. So there's concern that um, groups of visitors could gather together or tour buses could come up. So it's, it's a well-visited memorial. There's probably over a million uh, visitors that come every year when, uh, when it's open, uh, about three quarters of them school kids. Um, so our next focus now is to create a visitor education center adjacent, uh, very close to the memorial to complement the memorial, because there's a whole generation of children, uh, kids that are growing up that have no memory of 9-11. They don't remember the horror, the audacity of flying planes uh, into buildings as, as missiles and, and what happened uh, that day. So our, our focus now is um, is to build a visitor education center to help educate those those uh, uh, generations again that are growing up with no memory of 9/11 like like we all uh, have experienced. So uh, appreciate the time and look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Jim, and thanks everyone for helping us sort of level set on where you're you're coming from.
In part two of this conversation, we will continue this process of reflection as we look back at 9-11 memorials and our shared experiences since the attacks in 2001. Thanks to Christopher Mitchell, our manager of digital content and strategy for producing today's episode. And many thanks to you for listening to this episode of Encore, a precinct 444 podcast from the National Law Enforcement Museum. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will join us again for part two of 9-11, Memorials and the Meaning of Memory. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.